In his book, Trust and Inspire, Stephen M. R. Covey asserts that trust has become the new currency in our world and that the ability to develop, extend, and and restore trust is the number one competency of leadership needed today. Covey, you, you might remember his father, Stephen Covey, the author of the Seven Habits book. Stephen M. R. Covey's comments here track along with what we have established since the outset of our sermon series this month, that trust is the keystone of healthy relationships. Without trust, we have nothing. I hope that our focus this month has been helpful to you, to me. I believe that it has. And also that it's been redemptive. Perhaps through our time together, focusing on trust, relationships will be broken relationships will be mended. Healing will begin. Trust will be restored and earned. And my prayer is that with God's help, because we sure can't do it alone, that Christians and our churches, our church in particular, can embody a sustainable culture of trust. That we will thrive. That people in our community will know that we are a community of faith that trusts one another, that loves one another. And that through the example of Jesus, we will be inspired to live with integrity and empowered with responsibility in all kinds of relationships. A brief recap, in case you're new to us today or it's been a little while since you've watched or been with us. The first Sunday of the month, we laid some foundational work establishing that trust is the keystone of healthy relationships. And you remember we said that uh, the keystone is the most important stone in the architecture or the construction of an archway. And we pointed out that even our sanctuary has two keystones built into its architecture. One is just above the choir and the other just above the baptism area. Now, they are not architecturally significant to the structure, but they are symbolic of how keystones were used in the Ancient of Days and that it was the final stone placed in an arch and then the entire structure would stay together. Without the keystone, it would crumble. Last Sunday, we did, we asked the question, how do we build trust? And we talked about some of those key uh, parts of building trust. Next Sunday, the final message of the series, we will ask, how can we entrust our lives to God? And today we're focusing on how to rebuild trust when it's been broken. Through the series, we've centered on a definition of trust offered by Charles Feltman in his book, The Thin Book of Trust. And that is that trust is the choice to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. I'll repeat that for us. Trust is the choice to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. 
In other words, when we trust somebody, we are acknowledging that we could get hurt because it's risky. We're hoping that we won't, but trust involves that kind of exchange. In establishing how we build trust, we took from Feltman's work and we said that trust must incorporate sincerity, reliability, competence, and care. Sincerity says someone is genuine and acts with honesty and the utmost of integrity. So that's what we're looking for when we trust somebody, a sincerity. We're also looking for a reliability where there's a consistent track record when someone keeps their commitments, when they do what they say they're going to do. You can count on them. Building trust also necessitates a competency. As Pastor Aaron said in the children's message, there's accountability, that someone is willing to be responsible for their actions, and if they make a mistake, that they own up to it and apologize. Competency also says that there's some knowledge or capacity or skill set that they're exhibiting in the relationship, or even they desire to be a lifelong learner if they have made a mistake, that they want to do better and they don't want to repeat the same mistakes. And then finally, Feltman says that there's a care. So when we build or we seek to build trust, we're looking for each party to be caring, that the other has our best interest in mind, we have their best interest in mind. Do we genuinely care for one another? Are we following what the psalmist said, as you heard Tom read earlier, that God is compassionate and that God cares for us. God wants us to do the same thing in our relationships. So trust must be built. Stephen M. R. Covey uses the word currency, that trust is like a currency. And if you think about it as a currency or an exchange, then trust must be built up over time. Trust is not automatic. We want to see some evidence of sincerity, reliability, competency, and care in an individual before we fully trust them. It comes over time with a consistent commitment to integrity. As I said in the first sermon, trust is really an integrity, and trust is who we are and what we do when no one is looking. Some of you might remember Dr. Cecil Sherman, who was the first executive director of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and also one of our professors at the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. Dr. Sherman was one of my favorite professors in seminary. And uh, that some of you, do some of you all remember Dr. Sherman? Um, you might, he, I, I know he was here at Huguenot Road over the years, and you probably attended some meetings where he was. But he said in his class, The Life and Work of the Pastor, that you have to build pastoral ship over a period of time, meaning that trust is given to a pastor over a period of time. And he said when you're brand new and you're just starting out, you don't have any chips. You have to earn them. And you earn them by showing up and facilitating or carrying out the pastoral 
fulfill a responsibility that God has charged you with as a minister of the gospel. That when you make a hospital call, when you're there in a time of crisis, there at the baptism, when you're in the thick of things with folks, you earn those pastoral tips. And Dr. Sermon said, and sometimes you're called to cash some of those in when there might be a decision to make or a risk that you take. He commented on how he didn't have many pastoral tips at one of his churches, and he confronted racism during the time of the Civil Rights Movement. And people didn't trust him. They didn't know what his motivations were. But he stuck with it, and over a period of time, people were able to see that he was genuine and that he truly was after doing the right thing according to the gospel. But I'll never forget how he said that trust or those pastoral tips or relational tips that we have in marriage, in work, in family, in friendships, etc., are built over a period of time. It's just the same. And when we trust people, we don't we don't want to malign them. We don't want to do harm to their reputation. I remember the uh, last couple of years when quarterback Russell Wilson was still with the Seattle Seahawks, and he would comment publicly that his offensive line was failing to carry out their responsibilities, that if I just had a better O-line, if they were doing their job, then I could, well, complete more of my passes. I could stay in the pocket longer and so forth. And that didn't go over very well. You don't build trust by publicly criticizing the people who are keeping you from the defenders on the other side. You try to work it out, work with them over a period of time. Now we'll see. He's with the Denver Broncos, so we'll see how that works out this season, right? But it takes time and effort to build trust. And sadly, trust can be demolished in an instant, like pulling out the bottom pieces of the Jenga game. The pieces can fall in a moment, and we've got to rebuild them. And with God's help, we can. I would add that with God's help, we have the grace to rebuild trust. Grace is one essential ingredient that differentiates Christians from the mark from other religions, from the marketplace, and from the secular. We know that by the grace of God, we can rebuild trust in our relationships. We're going to unpack this a little more as we go through the biblical narrative where Jesus reinstates Peter. You remember, it was on Peter whom Jesus named Rock. His name was Simon, but Peter means Rock. It was on Peter whom Jesus would build his church. And one evening, all that was lost, or so it appeared. Let's look at a little of the backstory, and I think that will help us understand better this exchange between Jesus and Peter we read earlier. If you go back and on your own time and look at John chapter 20, you remember that Jesus appeared to his disciples the night of that first Easter. Resurrection, of course, he was first seen by the women, but then he appeared that night to some of his disciples. 
And he said, peace be with you, in verse 19 of chapter 20. You might remember that his disciple Thomas was, for some reason, not there. Scholars have tried to figure out where Thomas was, what he was doing, and so forth. But the Bible tells us that Thomas was not present at that moment. Well, Jesus appeared a second time about a week later. This time, Thomas was there. And you remember the story where Thomas touched the nail-scarred hands and the wounded side of Jesus. He needed to see the evidence and said, after he did so, my Lord and my God. He made a confession of faith. After this, the text doesn't tell us how much time went by. Previously, it had been one week since resurrection appearances. But there was indeed a lapse of time because of what happened next. Peter and the other six and six of the other disciples were hanging out together. Perhaps they were talking about all that happened. And then Peter says something kind of strange. I'm going out to fish. No. No, I'm going out to fish. And the others who were with him said, well, we'll go with you. Can you hear it? Commentators have speculated about Peter's intentions. And I agree with the general consensus that Peter had likely grown weary waiting on Jesus. He wondered when, perhaps, Jesus was going to make good on all those promises. Maybe Peter was praying and didn't hear the answers that he desired, like sometimes you and I don't hear an answer or the answer we desire or it's just crickets and we get impatient and we are just going to do our own thing. So Peter decides, I'm just going to go back to fishing. That's what I know. That's what my living was before I started to follow this Jesus. And I've got, you know, my family members to feed. I've got work to do. I'm, I'm just going to go back to do what I know I can do. I don't have time for all this waiting around. But you know what happened? They went back to fishing, but their, ne their nets came up empty. I imagine those other disciples were on the boat saying, well, how about that, Peter? Now what are you going to do? We let, we're, we're following you. We're supposed to be following him. Now we're following you, and we got nothing. All right? Well, early that morning, Jesus appeared on the beach. The disciples are out on the water fishing, coming up empty. Jesus suggests to throw their net over to the other side, and they catch an overwhelming amount of fish. He miraculously enables them to fill their nets. At first, they don't re recognize the stranger, though, who tells them to put their nets down on the right side of the boat. But after their nets are filled with, and the text says, 153 fish. How's that for accounting? John recognizes, John the disciple recognizes 
the man on the beach as the Lord. And immediately when Peter heard that and saw Jesus, he put on his outer garments and he swims to shore like he was an Olympic swimmer on the final stretch of the 100 meters. You can visualize him trying to get to the shore and running up there to where Jesus was. And while he swam, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of all of those fish. They had been about 100 yards off shore. And when Peter and the disciples got up there to the shore, they saw burning coals with some fish and some bread on them. Some people say this is Jesus' barbecue on the beach. And I can um, imagine, you know, like panini bread with the lines on it from the, the charcoal grill and the fish right there and putting it together for a nice fish sandwich in the morning. So this is what Jesus was up to. And he told them to bring some of the fish that they had caught and he, he's going to fix them and they would all have breakfast together. He fed them and they ate well. The last time Peter and the disciples ate with Jesus, it was the Passover supper. It was his last supper. And Jesus took bread and took a cup and instituted that meal that we still partake of today. I imagine the disciples, as they ate fish and bread with Jesus, remembered that Passover meal. But there was more that Jesus wanted one of the disciples to remember, and that was the disciple Peter. The charcoal on the grill would have reminded Peter of his betrayal of Jesus. His third betrayal, where the after which the rooster crowed. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel all record that Peter broke down and wept bitterly. He knew what he had done. He knew that he had betrayed his master and teacher and Lord. And he thought there was no hope. Maybe some of that went into his reason just to go back to doing what he always knew he could do. That night that he betrayed Jesus, not only did Peter fall asleep in the garden, not only did he hide as he watched Jesus taken away to meet his death, but he denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times and then wept bitterly. When he denied Jesus the first time and the second time, Scripture says that he was standing next to a charcoal fire warming himself. And I imagine when he smelled the scent of the charcoal on the beach that morning where Jesus was cooking the bread and the fish, that the smell of those charcoals took him right back to the betrayal. How can I forgive myself? How is he going to trust me again? The two times that the word translated charcoal or coals is used in the New Testament is in this story on the beach and in the account of the betrayal of Jesus by Peter. 
how could he trust me again after what I did? But isn't it like Jesus to consider the sights and smells of denial when creating the setting for restoration? Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Perhaps accounting for and wiping away the denial, the denial, the denial. Listen again to the scripture, verse 15 through 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Perhaps meaning all these fish, all the money, all that, or all these other disciples, all these other friends. Do you love me more than these things? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs, implying the baby lamb, the little lambs, the little ones, the little children. Feed them. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The word take care, the phrase, means to shepherd my sheep, steward my sheep, facilitate or carry out the responsibilities of a shepherd over my sheep. And then a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. This time feed the big sheep. Feeding not only in a literal sense, but feeding the word of God, leading them in the way that they should go, teaching them all the things that Jesus had taught. In other words, Jesus, in those three statements, is preparing Peter for his next assignment. All three of these questions would help to overcome all three of the denials. You might say, why three times to let Simon Peter's threefold affirmation of love wipe out the bitter memory of his threefold denial that the charcoal had brought to his memory? And I believe Jesus is saying, Peter, you can do it. You've got to put your failure behind you. Stop dwelling on it. Don't keep talking about it. You need to move on. The slate is wiped clean. You can start all over again. And then he says at the end, he looks at, at, at Peter and says, just follow me. Just follow me. And I can hear Jesus say, I will lead you in the way in which you should go. In a sense, recalling the passage we started this series with from Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, trust, trust him. 
and I'll, I'll make tape. Straighten your path. Just trust me. This is precisely what the risen Christ does for you and me. He knows about our failures. He knows about our fears. He knows about the trusts that we struggle with, the mistrust, the broken trust, the breaches. Yet he still believes in us and he still comes to us to heal and to forgive. And I would add to trust us and to inspire us to go out in the world to share this good news of what is possible through the love of Jesus Christ. This is the story of how to rebuild trust when it's broken. The grace of Jesus can heal and can forgive. It is the main ingredient in rebuilding trust. Grace is. Grace, the main ingredient in rebuilding trust. Grace beyond measure. So I want to circle back to where we started, what we said about trust, including sincerity, reliability, competency, and care. we got to have all of these when we trust, but they must all be there when we rebuild trust, that we would be sincere about it, that others would see us as reliable, that we exhibit the, the competency, the the actions, uh, the, the, the ability, the things that we need to do to rebuild the trust, that we exhibit these things, and that we truly care about the other. In all of this, that we would have a consistent commitment to the practice of integrity, of doing the right thing, saying the right thing when no one is looking. In other words, God's calling us in rebuilding trust to be the real deal, to, to, to say, I'm going to stop the hurting behavior. I want, to be, I want to do my very best with the help of God to move forward with a clean slate, not to go back where I was before. I take fully, full responsibility of my past actions and the present distrust that exists in our relationship. I am truly sorry for the hurt that I have caused. I am remorseful. Like Peter wept bitterly after he denied Jesus three times, that we are truly remorseful for the breach in the relationship. And I'm to say I am to the other. I am willing to put it all on the table, to be open and transparent, and to ask, what is it that I can do to prove to you that you can trust me again? Even if it's that we put something in writing, in a, a type of covenant with mutual expectation, with the help of a counselor, but that we want to be fully open and willing to rebuild trust because it is that important. And sometimes we say, how can God forgive these people? How can we do this with what we've been through? And I would say, if God can raise a dead man from the grave, he can raise our relationships, right? It can be done through grace beyond measure if we are both willing to work at it. I would say, before we close, this important thing. We may need the help of a professional counselor or a pastor or a relationship coach or some other person we respect to help us 
in rebuilding trust. There are some things that we just don't have the tools to be able to do on our own. So we need that extra help. And I would also say, there may be some people you can't continue with in relationship. There may be some where there's been abuse, physical or verbal, or narcissistic behavior, or someone uh, that causes you to be in a consistent environment of fear and oppressiveness. In these situations, and you need to, with the help of a professional, to move on and work on those things that you need to do to be a healthy, to live as a healthy uh, individual physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But in general, I'm, I'm talking about relationships that we have with friends and family and church, with people at work. Most situations, we can rebuild trust if we follow through on the example of Jesus and make sure that things like rely, uh, sincerity, reliability, competency, trust, integrity are all part of that relationship. And just recognize that it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? It does. But anything that takes a lot of work is worth doing. Things that are just easy and, well, it might not be as important. But if it's difficult, it's worth working on. It might be difficult, but it's worth it. In the end, the world will see a love that overcomes all odds. In the end, the world will see that these Christian folks, I know some folks at Huguenot Road that they had uh, an issue at work and they were able to uh, work it out and talk about it. And I, I, I want some of that. I, I want to be able to work like that in my relationships. In the end, people will see there's something different about the way that we engage in relationships and trust each other, that, that they will know that we are Christians. And it's because of the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God that they'll know. They'll know that we are Christians by our everyone will know that you are my disciples 